Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. In the year 2021, 33.9% of public sector workers were union members compared to just over 6% of private sector workers, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That would have surprised organized labor boosters like FDR and George Meany, who both opposed public sector unions. This week, we discuss a new book, Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. The author, Philip K. Howard, has joined us to talk about the book and how the United States got to a place where public sector unions control so much of how public policy gets made today. The book is a quick 160 pages, and you can find it wherever you find books on January 24th, 2023. Philip is a lawyer, author, and civic leader. He's chair of Common Good, a nonpartisan organization that aims to simplify laws so Americans may rely on common sense to make daily choices. He's also senior counsel at the Covington and Burling Law Firm. And we're also joined today by the Grace Center's co-executive director, Adam White. Great. Thanks, Jace. And welcome, Philip. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Nice to be here, Adam and Jace. Why don't we start with the big picture, uh, the biggest picture question of all. What what spurred you to write this book? You've been working on a lot of these issues for a very long time. You write a lot. But what's what spurred the book? And why don't you just give us a sense of generally what's in the book? Well, you know, I think I have one idea in life, which is that only people make things happen. And, you know, we've created this governing structure since the 1960s designed to create a government better than people. So we've got thousand page rule books and lawsuits over anything anybody doesn't like and such. And and, and the effect of that is that uh, government operations don't work. And the parties argue about policy, but none of them almost ever address operations. Why is it that schools are so lousy? Why is it the trash collection costs so much? Why can't you hold a bad cop accountable? You know, all these things are operational. They're not really policy issues. And um, so I've I've been on that case for a while. But it, 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 you know, a few years ago, it occurred to me that it's impossible to fix those things until government is manageable and specifically until people within government are accountable. You can let people use their judgment and try to use their common sense to run a classroom or to, or to, or to run an agency, but only if they're accountable. And there's near zero accountability in government at all levels in America and near zero manageability, or, you know, at least, <laughs> if not zero, little manageability. So, uh, and that's mainly because of the public employee unions and the power they've they've um, achieved over the last 50 years. I, I'm struck by the title of, your, title of your book, or the subtitle, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. It seems to me that the book almost makes that argument at two levels. Um, Obviously, the legal question of, of what the Constitution empowers the president to do or not to do, but also in the, the constitutional sense, not legalistic, but just the kind of country, the kind of government we were supposed to have, um, the basic principles and 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 themes that were supposed to, and values are supposed to animate governance. A lot of your book is about constitutional self-government outside of just narrow legalistic arguments. Is, am I overstating it? 
No, not at all. I mean, one of the things that that has happened, you know, people have increasingly um, been concerned about the power of public unions and the inability to manage government, but they look at it as a kind of necessary evil because unions have become so politically powerful. And what do you do about it? It's like they're a state of nature, like a mountain range or something. And in what few people have done is put the frame of constitutional governance on that. Well, what have the unions done to our ability to govern this country? We elect voters, elect mayors and governors who promise to make the schools better or to run the police department better and such. And they don't have the power to do that. So it's it's like this giant um, charade where, where we elect people who are figureheads and democracies kind of become a process of blaming the other side rather than actually getting anything done because the people we elect and, and you know, and particularly elected executives like the president, governors, mayors and stuff, they don't have the authority to manage government. So what's their job? I mean, what's the what's the Constitution for? Well, maybe before we get to the, the legal arguments in the Constitution, why don't we take a, uh, a step back a bit? And Jace, do you want to ask some more practical questions? Sure. Well, the biggest one, if we're talking about collective bargaining with public sector unions, I was wondering if you could just give us an overview about the fundamental difference between the organizing and collective bargaining done by trade unions versus that done by employees in the public sector. Really important question, because everybody just assumes it's the same. And when they authorized collective bargaining back in the heyday of the rights revolution in the late 1960s, everybody assumed it would just be the same thing. They could hardly be more different. Trade union negotiations were all about dividing the pie between capital and labor. And both sides are at risk. If the if the union asks too much, the company will go out of business or it'll move out of move the jobs offshore and everyone loses their jobs. So and if the if the workers, if the unions insist on inefficient work rules, the company will go out of business or somebody else will get the job. So so there's a um, there's a natural tension that that requires in, in both sides self-interest that um, that the contract be reasonable, that, that it not kind of undo the, the, the health of the enterprise. Uh, the leverage uh, and the harm of public unions is completely different. Um, first of all, uh, the, the government can't move. <laughs> it's not going to move overseas. You know, the, the, the city of, you know, Minneapolis or whatever, you know, is stuck there and it's, and it's in the middle of a contract. So it's, 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 you know, it's not going to go anywhere. Secondly, there's no incentive for, to avoid inefficiency. These unions view inefficiency as a kind of badge of honor. You know, you can't fix this unless you get two more people here, even if one person can fix it in five minutes, you know, you know, that sort of thing, because who pays for it? It's not the person they're negotiating with who's only in office for, you know, four years or whatever, the executive. And it's not the public workers. They don't lose their job. So you have this, this um, uh, as it's developed, this natural instinct for 
abusive inefficiencies, both in terms of how pensions work, how work rules work, and unmanageability. You have to get approval before you can change, um, you know, redeploy personnel or whatever. I mean, it's, just, it's literally unbelievable. Hundreds of pages of, of these, you know, restrictions that, that manage it. But worst of all, and the biggest difference between trade union negotiations and public unions negotiations is that public union negotiations are fundamentally corrupt. It's illegal for management to go pay off some workers at the union and and get them to go along with what they do in the trade union sector. In public, the way public unions work is they devote huge resources to getting their allies elected. And then they sit down at the bargaining table and say, what are you going to give me now? They're not sitting on opposite sides of the table with a genuine negotiation. It's more like a payoff. And the question is only how much they can get away with getting that the public won't revolt. So the so you have this 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 form of negotiation which is which is almost inherently driven towards inefficiency and um, um, and lack of concern for the public interest. That is also collusive. Yeah, one example you gave in the book struck out stuck out to me. Uh, you were talking about someone, I think it was New York, wondering why the paint was peeling near the ceiling in some schools. And there was some rule that janitors could only paint up to 10 feet up the wall. But if they wanted to paint any higher, they had to hire an outside painter. Yeah, that's right. So that was actually something discovered by Eva Moskowitz, who then went on to run the you know, Great Charter School Network when she was a member of the city council. But there are rules like that all over the place. If you want to ask a uh, member of the work of, of the repair crew on uh, on the Long Island Railroad to fix fix the railroad, and there happens to be a branch hanging over the over the um, track, they can't saw it off. They have to call in different people with a different job description to saw it off. It's just literally it's. The rules are designed for inefficiency. If you want, if you have anything unusual that happens, let's say there's a COVID pandemic and you have to figure out a way to educate students without opening up the schools. Guess what? There's no provision for that in the in the union contract. So the unions just say no. And it's it was it's been a it's a, it, it's not a disaster, it's a tragedy what's happened to the learning of, of, of the kids who needed schools the most, because they were, they were out of pocket for two years. Yeah, and a lot of data is coming out about learning loss and grappling with the choices that were made in the past couple of years. That's right. Everybody else in society who was an essential worker uh, went out and, you know, they were nurses and orderlies in hospitals. They were delivery people. They were people who worked in grocery stores, but not the teachers. The teachers had their, their rights into the contract and they refused to go. And so you mentioned at the federal level, um, some when JFK had that executive order that allowed uh, collective bargaining with federal public employees, 
some of the reasoning behind that was that it would be more efficient and you wouldn't have any of these problems that you're talking about. How did we get here when it seems like with FDR and some of the older organized labor advocates, they saw that you couldn't have efficient collective bargaining at the public sector? Yeah, I think um, I think what happened is, and Daniel DeSalvo, political scientist, has written about um, the history of public unions and such. It goes into this really good uh, book. Um, what happened is is that uh, the growth of government led to a natural um, 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 political weight of the new mass of public employees. You know, we had government got bigger and bigger, we had more and more public employees. And not only do we have more public employees, but they were protected by civil service systems so that they couldn't, you know, there, there wasn't turnover with every election as there was back in the spoil system and such, which was probably a good thing, but it allowed them to begin mobilizing that power. And it happened actually soon after civil service began in the late 19th century. There were there were those pressures already started started occurring, and um, and and after World War II, the um, um, the you know the the public unions kept pre put pressing and pressing and pressing, and finally, as a kind of payoff to the unions, JFK did this did this order which didn't allow them to negotiate over salary, but allowed them to negotiate over other terms of employment and basically made accountability impossible. So I don't know how much you might want to get into this, but um, what union benefits are hidden from taxpayers? You talk about how their interest is different from trade unions because they're not just dividing up a set pie, what are those costs that are associated on the public side that you don't get on the private side? Well, I think by far the biggest cost of, of public unions is, is, is one, unmanageability. And studies suggest that public sector is two to four times less efficient than, than, the, than the private sector. We're talking about a huge beta. So so there's, um, if you think about all the things we need resources for, like to, to rebuild mental health facilities to deal with the homeless or whatever, that's a lot of money. Where does the money come from? Well, it, it could come from actually having government be a little less inefficient, but, but you can't do that you know, under the union contract. Um, the, the, the second biggest cost, I think, is that you can't, um, you can't reform the bureaucracy because all those rules and pr procedures are basically a replacement for accountability. There are really all that jungle. You don't need the jungle of rules telling people how to do things if you can hold them accountable. And so, so you can't get government reform. So you get this horrible mess that frustrates Americans' death. And then the salaries, I think, of government workers are not, by and large, the problem. You could argue that some public workers were even underpaid salary-wise. The abusives have come with, with overtime and with pensions, where they played all these games 
and political leaders have given them benefits that will only kick in long after the political leader leaves office. So you end up with people spiking over time in the last year of their tenure as a, as a cop. So for many jurisdictions, you can retire as a public safety officer after 20 or 25 years. So we're talking about people in their 40s or 50s. And then, then they, they get a lot of overtime in the last year and their pension is calculated as a percentage of that. So they were making, pick a number, $90,000 a year. And all of a sudden in the last year, they made $190,000. So their pension, instead of being $60,000, is now $150,000. Well, and then, because, because they're, quote, retiring at the age of 50 or whatever, then they go back to work, often with the same, you know, with the same agency. So they're collecting hundred and whatever it is, $50,000 in pension. And then they go collect a salary at the same time again, doing the same job. So it's just, it, it's become a kind of scam but it's all related to, to uh, retirement uh, that's retirement ages that are unrealistic and retirement benefits that are gamed. That makes a lot of sense. And your book goes into great detail about how spiking and some of the other costs balloon coming out of the collective bargaining process. And I was wondering if you could tell us what some of the potential benefits uh, that come from public sector collective bargaining that we might lose if we view them as unconstitutional. Like <laughs> some people defend them saying that you have less turnover or, and this is disputed, but they'll say that you can attract more talent if you know that you're set in your place. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the studies on perfect public service have uh, by and large emphasized that um, uh, that, that people are repelled by by public service because they're not allowed to take, make a difference and take responsibility. Um, they're repelled by all the rules. Daniel Salvo tells a story of a painter in City College in New York who comes up to him he's so so frustrated saying, I just want to do a good job and I'm told to stop painting so quickly because because it will mean that they they may employ less painters and it makes the rest of us look bad. So so there's this kind of culture of again gaming day-to-day -day jobs and system. Um, it, it's it, it, if you want government to be attractive to people, you have to pay people fairly. And again, I would pay teachers more. I'd probably pay cops more, but I wouldn't let them retire after 20 years, uh, you know, with a pension. But, um, but, but dignity comes from the pride of doing a good job. And, oh, this is a really important point. As a matter of organizational psychology, if you know that performance doesn't matter, there will be no mutual trust within the department or the organization because you have no reason to think that other people are you know, pulling their weight or going the extra mile to make sure that people are pleased. Now, there are lots of good government agencies where the culture trumps that, you know, where people do a good job 
uh, notwithstanding that and work hard and the, notwithstanding their hiccups with the COVID, the Centers for Disease Control is a place where people put their lives on the line to go try to solve you know, um, epidemics around the world and such. But in general, if you have an organization where performance doesn't matter, it's like letting the air out of the bloom. It's like putting putting an opiate into the atmosphere. You know, people kind of shuffle along. They don't clean it. Yeah, it's just horrible. And the Volcker reports talked about that. They talked about how discouraging it is to work in a department where people aren't held to account. Let's talk a little bit about the legal issues around this. Um, a lot of the debates around public sector unions and also about civil service protections, they they they, they involve both debates over executive power and also the power of Congress in some ways to legislate on these things. So before we, we dive into it, Philip, could you just give the listeners a sense of the legal structure around this? Uh, talking today, where do the sources of protection for public sector unionization come from in the federal yeah. government? Are they still just a matter of executive order? Are there statutes in play? Right. So so people view uh, public unions as kind of like a First Amendment thing. You know, everybody else can unionize, so we, we. it's not. It's, it's They're explicitly authorized by statutes, collective bargaining is, which requires elected leaders to make a deal, requires a matter of law to make, the, to, to make a deal with the union. And, and over the last 50 years, as unions have, Use collective bargaining as an organizational tool to achieve political power to millions of people paying $1,000 each in dues. So we're talking about billions of dollars a year you know, in, in, in political uh, activity. Um, you know, what's happened is they've gotten statutes enacted that, that also protect them. So these things have become statutory. In some cases, they've even, even gotten state constitutional amendments put in to to give them special benefits and such. Um, so, so there is a there is a legal super, superstructure that's been erected beginning in the 1960s that um, th that gives unions these powers. And the constitutional argument is that the legislatures had no constitutional authority to um, delegate the sovereign powers that should be held by elected officials to these private entities called public unions. And so that's the, you know, that's the gist of the of, of, of the argument. But 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 the protections exist in in myriad statutes at this point. I mean, the, the Citizen Budget Commission in New York City um, last year uh, in their report uh described 21 new bills introduced in the New York State legislature designed to sweeten public pensions. 21 new bills. So, and not all of them passed, but some of them did. So, so imagine that going on every day for 50 years. You know, so you've got this, this, and all of those laws are basically in derogation of executive authority. So in the book, when you get to the crux of the legal issue, you you say that the given that there are statutes on the books that 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 authorize or require collective bargaining in in the public sector, um, uh, this is a question of executive power. 
and that the uh, the Supreme Court could, in a in a proper case, strike down the constitutionality of some of these statutes as an encroachment upon the president's executive power. Here's a quote. Uh, this is the concluding uh, part of chapter 10 of the book. In all other situations, the president and federal supervisory officials must have authority to manage personnel and to make other operational decisions. This requires, among other remedies, invalidating specific provisions of the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 that mandate collective bargaining, disempower the president and his appointees from, from removing officers, and require bargaining disputes to be resolved by the impasse panel. Uh, I, I tend to be kind of an executive power guy, but that is a that's a pretty sweeping argument for for executive power that the president has removal authority all the way down to the lowest levels of government, and that exercising that that preventing him from exercising that authority at will is an encroachment on his his Article Two power. Well, um, I didn't say exactly at will. I mean, so you can you can have speed bumps like Lloyd the Lloyd Law Follette Act of 1912 um, said that the president could could you know terminate any civil servant he wanted to basically, mm-hmm. uh, but but there was a principle in the act that you can't terminate people just because you disagree with their politics, and it provided a procedure that's not a legal trial, but a um, a basis for uh, objecting to the Civil Service Commission, which would have authority to look at the facts and decide whether it was motivated politically or not, yeah. and they could reverse it. So that's a speed bump, yeah. and that speed bump, if you were running a school, because every you know one of the characteristics of modern government is that everything works so badly that people are imbued with distrust. Right, of everyone, right? So the, yeah. it's like, you know, we've got this like the age of distrust. And so I understand that. So in in a school, you know, if I were writing the rules, I wouldn't say the principal can fire anybody he wants. I would say the principal has managerial authority. You can't restrict him in the way that these multi-hundred page agreements do, mm-hmm. including the power to terminate. However, I would give probably a site-based committee, similar to the way they work in some auto factories and such, the, the maybe a parent-teacher committee, the authority to veto a, a, a termination. Yeah. You know, it's a speed bump. I mean, everybody knows who the bad teachers are. So if he's really acting unfairly, then fine. But But that too is a matter of judgment. It's not a two-year-long legal process. Well, so I think that's a very important distinction that this is this book is not against civil service protections writ large. It's not about that. It's not a constitutional argument against, say, the Pendleton Act of 18, or 1883. <laughs> um, this is focused on public sector unions as being particularly exceptional to even the, the sort of the, the constitutional arrangements that we had in the aftermath of the, of the Pendleton Act. And by the way, Philip, I can also imagine, in addition to all the speed bumps you just described, I can imagine an argument about the president in certain circumstances having Article II authority to do away with public sector union collective bargaining on particular subjects where the national interest is at stake, where national security might be at stake. Um, You could see maybe a broad 
removal of unionization in targeted areas, if that, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And so there are some states that, for example, allow collective bargaining over over wages, but they don't allow collective bargaining over um, uh, termination and personnel and, and over management. I mean, by far, to me, the most important aspect of executive power is the ability to um, adapt and engage in trial and error and to redeploy resources and all the things that you need to do to run any sort of organization, which are prohibited. So it's like crazy. It's like literally, we're, we, we have this, we have these systems that are stuck in some kind of you know, 1906 scientific management theory of of hundreds of people in an office shuffling paper or something. When 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 you have modern government trying to provide an unbelievable array of services that are incredibly complicated, you know, starting with policing, but <laughs> going on and you know, giving a permit for. Um, Giving a permit for a new transmission line requires all kinds of judgments. You can't just have it be routinized in a process. I mean, what what happens is what's happened. It, it, you know, you could colonize Mars before you get a permit, you know, for the new transmission line. It just goes on for decades. Well, and your mention about the, this limiting the flexibility of government that brings me back to FDR. Um, you mentioned earlier that FDR was a critic or a skeptic or an opponent of public sector unions. It's interesting to think about why that would be the case. He was, after all, an advocate, not just for executive power um, over bureaucracy, but in the New Deal, in, in his initial his, his initial sort of uh, his initial administration, what was his famous line about experiment? We're going to experiment over, you know, over and right. over. Again. If it doesn't work, try something else. I mean, yeah, you know, that idea, right? Yeah. So anyway, your point about it slowing down the pace of changing government it reminds me of, of FDR. But you're about to say something. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting. I think FDR, who who had this very explicit statement that the process of collective bargaining cannot be transferred from industry to the public sector, uh, I think he understood. One that the, the that the leverage dynamic was completely different. That you know that government doesn't have that that kind of tension where both parties have to be efficient. You know, both parties in in this case are just trying to so siphon off money from the taxpayers. You know, neither has an incentive to be efficient. Uh, but I think he also understood something else that I talk about in the book, which is that there's a um, there's an ethical difference between public employees and everyone else, including every other interest group. And the ethical difference is that they owe a duty of loyalty to the public. And um, uh, state executives and local executives have to take an oath of loyalty under the Constitution to the, to the federal Constitution. And everyone, lots of case law on this, owe a duty of loyalty. With these negotiations, are all against the public interest. I mean, it's, you know, when the when the correctional officers, officers union in California spends millions of dollars to promote a three strikes or you're out law, that's designed to 
increase the number of inmates in their in the California jails, and therefore to increase the number of correctional officer jobs. Uh, and it's unbelievably unjust. You get some guy who steals a banana, put him in jail for life, you know, because he'd earlier stolen a golf club and a quart of milk or something. You know, it's like crazy. Uh, so, uh, so when you have um, uh, the teachers' unions, uh, this is the current example. Flexing their muscle to get the Biden administration, contrary to what Biden did when he was part of the Obama administration, to uh, propose regulations that basically make it unlawful to start a new charter school without teachers union approval, which is, if you, you know, cutting through it all is what the regs, regs would require. How is that in the public interest? It's not in the public interest. The, the the studies show that the charter schools, not in suburbs, but in inner cities, are radically more effective than at teaching underprivileged children than the public schools are. You know, so, so, so you have just example after example of the, of, you know, how is it in the public interest to have it cost? Uh, somebody told me the other day uh, in, in New York City, when COVID came, uh, the MTA was spending a lot of money to sanitize the subway cars. And they didn't have enough personnel because they weren't geared up to sanitize. Because that's when people thought you could get it from holding on to the railings or whatever. So they hired private contractors. Well, apparently the private contractors did multiples more work for the dollar than the, than the MTA did. Because the MTA employees were just abiding by their you know work rules well that's that's not just inefficient that's immoral every public dollar involves a moral choice if you waste it then it's not available to take care of whatever you want to take care of homelessness anything else more police lower taxes <laughs> all those things so we've got this entire governing system that probably costs, at least in terms of its personnel, pick a number, two or three times as much as it should, because it is unman, not because the people are bad, but because it's unmanageable. And it's unmanageable because these unions have taken it upon themselves to make it unmanageable. And so going from your point about unmanageability to some of I have a couple practical questions. Right. Looking at the experience with the schools in COVID, did that change public perception of public unions at all? Or what do you think the public's perception of this problem is at this point? You know, I don't know. I haven't uh, I haven't seen the, the surveys. I think if you ask the public generally, what do they think of unions? They'd probably say, oh, unions are good. They protect workers. And I think there's some maybe some recent data they don't i don't think they distinguish between trade unions and 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 public employee unions um but if you ask people generally about um uh the teachers union i think it would probably be fairly fairly negative because they they realized that the teachers didn't go back to work for 2 years when everybody else was so so i think it's a mixed um it's a mixed story, and I don't think that anyone has ever really um, framed the problem 
the way we're discussing it now. I don't think people have framed the problem as as what they've done to, you know, what they've done to democracy. You know, what what, what are we getting for our money? Are, are we really getting the services? Are they responsive? Um, you know, I think people clearly accountability, the whole idea of accountability, completely misunderstood. The teachers unions talk about it as always oh, just a matter of due process, right? As if the only question here is protecting a few lousy employees. Uh, you know, accountability is, is like the stem cell of democracy. Demo democ the Constitution sets up a series of powers of people who are elected <laughs> and are accountable in the next election for whether they did a good job. Well, that is that presumes that they have the powers that the Constitution give, gave them, the, the executive power to run the executive branch. Well, if they don't have that power, then the accountability is kind of useless, right? And accountability is, as we discussed earlier, is is the bedrock of of uh, any healthy organization. If you're not accountable, it's not going to be healthy, period. I mean, it's going to be, you know, as I said, all the energy, you know, like punching up, putting a hole in the balloon. <laughs> so, um, you know, accountability is really, um, um, really fundamental. And, and we've created this huge governmental system that's unmanageable and unaccountable. And then we wonder why everybody's so frustrated. <laughs> right. We're coming toward the end of our time, and I've got two more political questions. And going off of what you said, Adam's got one too. Going on what you said about accountability, you made a point in the book about the Republican Guarantee Clause. So this is talking about um, collective bargaining at the state level. What do you think the chances are that courts would use that in the past, they've looked at that and ruled that questions involving that clause are political questions. Um, is there a, a chance that that would change as they revisit some of these questions? Or how does your argument fit in with that? <laughs> well, well, my argument, I, I, I discuss that, obviously, in the book. I mean, I'm not trying to blow smoke on anybody. The, so the guarantee clause in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution provides that the United States will guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. It was discussed um, pretty extensively by Madison, among others at the time. And, and the point of that provision was to prevent um, any state or local government from giving governing powers to uh, any kind of permanent group, like an aristocracy or a special faction or, or quote, a favored class is how, uh, you know, sort of uh, Madison described it. So you can't, and, and it relates to the more fundamental um, uh, constitutional doctrine that stems from John Locke, which is that you can't delegate sovereign power to private people that that's just not consistent with, with any, you know, sort of constitutional form of government. That ultimately, ultimately the voters have to be able to vote for people who have the authority and retain the authority to manage government. And they don't have the authority to give it to some, those officials can't cede it or delegate it to a private 
group that's not accountable to the voters. Well, of course, that's exactly what's happened here, right? They've given these powers through collective bargaining and otherwise to the union so that government has become unmanageable and it doesn't really matter much whom we elect. And um, um, so the guarantee clause has come up before the Supreme Court, you know, maybe half a dozen times in 200 years. And in each case, it has involved a political question. The first case involved uh, Rhode Island, whether a uh, competing constitution was more Republican informed than the constitution that the legislature had enacted or whatever. You know, it's a political question. Um, another case, uh, the turn of the last century was whether um, a voter referendum was somehow inconsistent with a Republican form of government because it was voters passing the law rather than the officials passing the law. And, and that was a political question. It's, but re remember here, because the point was to avoid the disempowerment of voters, right? You know, that wasn't, referendums are not such a problem because the voters retain the power, right? So there has not been a case like this one, uh, union controls don't involve political questions or operational questions. Is this a good teacher or a bad teacher? Is this cop irresponsible or not? You know, does he have good judgment or not? These are completely operational. They have nothing to do with political questions that's traditionally known. Uh, Justice Brennan, in the famous case of Baker v. Carr, which was the one man, one vote kind of case, uh, from 1962, I think, um, addressed this. And he said, the only reason the guarantee clause is non-justiciable is because it has come up in a political question context. And it should be justiciable if it doesn't involve a political question. And so I argue in this book that it, this what I'm arguing does not involve political questions, and they clearly should uh, take it and and... Uh, and, and adjudicate. Well, just to follow up that point really quick, just to interject, Bill, the two examples you cited just a second ago, um, teachers uh, and police, they actually strike me as in this day and age among the, they're at the center of some of the most political issues of our times. Um, I, I wonder if maybe those are two examples where we're actually it's, it's very, very political, the circumstances surrounding the 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 disciplining of teachers and and uh, and police. I, I, I come from the uh, from the proud county of Loudoun County, which has been the uh, in Virginia, the center of the universe over the school board fights for the last two years. It's the most political issue we have there. Uh, that's true uh, that that you can turn inept government into a political issue and you can you know can turn um, um, the fact that nobody could reassign or fire Derek Chauvin, the guy who killed George Floyd, you know, into a political question. but but it's not a, a it's not a policy question. It's a question of who has authority under our constitution to make the judgments about how to about that person and about running that department and and the whole idea of executive power which the supreme court has written about a lot over the years in different contexts the whole idea of executive power is about power over operations it's not about um, um you know setting political policy so while any any controversial thing has a political aspect to it 
the the lever that we're trying to revive here is an operational lever. It's not a political lever. It's not saying let's spend more money on climate change. It's not saying we think it's better not to have gerrymandering, which is a political question, you know, about whether legislation should be authorized in Germany. We're not saying that. We're just talking about who has the who has the power to utilize to manage public resources uh, in a way that's efficient for the public good. Who's supposed to have that? And under our constitutional system, that power belongs with executives. And it's in the nature of that power. It's not political. It's in the nature of that power. So I don't, so, so I agree that you can turn anything into a political dispute. What we're talking about here is who has authority to do something? That's an operational uh, question. And the Constitution cedes those, I mean, allocates those powers to elected executives. Thanks for joining us. And your book does a great job in such a short space framing this entire debate. And I also recommend people check out the forward by Mitch Daniels. He gave really good examples of how on the ground some of these issues came into play. Well, it's great to be with you guys. I look forward to doing more with the Gray Center in the future. Thanks for joining us. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.